Hey everyone, I hope you're all doing well. We are continuing our discussion of heroes of faith as we look at various men and women throughout scripture and how their faith encourages us and instructs us today. Uh, we've already covered a number of folks. We've covered Noah, Moses, and David, and we've looked at how God has worked in their lives, even though uh, they're not perfect, but they have tremendous faith uh, in a God who is faithful to us. And so today, what we're going to do is look at the story of Esther. And Esther is really a fascinating uh, story of the Israelites in exile under Babylon, and uh, they are being threatened with mass uh, genocide. Uh, but at the last minute, God does a great work through a young Jewish girl who rises up uh, to become queen of Persia. And so the um, the book of Esther, where we find her story, is only one of two books in all of Scripture that do not mention God. The other one being the Song of Solomon. And in addition to uh, explicitly not mentioning God, throughout um, the years, there have been a lot of concerns uh, from individuals as it relates to this particular book, because uh, the only pious action that uh, is seen is um, fasting. There's no mention of prayer, although that's kind of implied with the fasting there's no mention of really scripture reading or or anything else that you would associate with someone who is trying to live a, a godly life it's also bothered uh, a lot of people um, that esther doesn't um, really act like um, uh, a, a law-abiding uh, jewish uh, young girl in the story she participates in basically a royal beauty pageant uh, where she sleeps with the king to curry his favor and ends up marrying him. Uh, and that is a big taboo in Jewish circles because here's this Jewish girl marrying this pagan Gentile man. Uh, and then also uh, she doesn't seem to really follow the Jewish dietary laws um, the way we see with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel. Um, she's eating all the, the pagan food that was most likely offered to idols. Uh, in that time as well. For these reasons and many others, uh, it has led a lot of people um, to really be uneasy with the book of Esther. And in fact, it was one of the last books accepted uh, into the canon that makes up uh, our Bibles. And so it's a, really a fascinating book with a lot of uh, background to it that really makes it kind of stand out. And so that's why one reason why I'm really excited about discussing it with you uh, this week. Now, Despite these concerns that I've mentioned, many have still fallen in love with this particular book of the Bible. Um, one reason is because um, even though God isn't explicitly mentioned in this book, it's obvious that God is working behind the scenes, uh, moving in such a way to still watch out and, and protect his people and be faithful to his promises to them. I, for one, uh, really like that aspect of this book because I really feel like a lot of times that's how God works in our own lives. He's always working. He's always moving, but not always clearly seen. And we, we see that um, very um, pointedly in uh, the book of Esther. Now, the story of Esther begins with the Israelites in captivity uh, in Babylon under the reign of Ahasuerus, um, uh, also known as Xerxes. And I'll just refer to him uh, by his more common name of Xerxes uh, throughout the study, just so it's more clear as to who's uh, being talked about in the story. Uh, his, his more um, Babylonian uh, Persian name of Ahasuerus uh, isn't 
quite as widely known. So that's the, the phrase we'll use now. Some of you may be uh, very familiar with the term uh, uh, Xerxes because this is um, shown throughout history and is depicted in a lot of movies. The most recent one that I'm aware of is the movie 300. Um, but if you have seen that movie, the Xerxes that's uh, shown in that movie uh, does not look at all like uh, the way Xerxes was probably um, the way he probably looked in real life. And so they took quite a deal, quite a bit of um, artistic liberties with with how he looked uh, with that particular movie. Now, as you are aware, uh, Israel, the Israelites um, went into Babylonian exile because of their pagan idolatry and unfaithfulness to the things of God. So God sent them uh, into exile in Babylon. And some of the things that we know about Xerxes as he's reigning and ruling um, is that he is a part of a particular Persian dynasty. There were a number of them, but uh, his particular dynasty uh, had been around for about 70 years by the time he comes onto the scene. And the events that we read about in the book of Esther most likely occur many years after the book of Daniel. As you'll remember, Daniel was also in Babylon, uh, Babylonian captivity, um, but he was at an earlier time. Uh, in captivity. And so after a number of generations, then Esther comes on the scene with Xerxes. Now, um, the kingdom of Xerxes, uh, by the time that we meet him in the book of Esther, includes Egypt, Ethiopia, the Middle East, and much of Asia Minor. He, and he has his eye on conquering Greece and the Spartans and all that sort of stuff that we uh, read about in history. And, and as I said, uh, they make movies about, <clears throat> but he, that hasn't happened yet. Those things don't occur until after uh, the events that we see in Scripture. There are some scholars who believe that um, the gathering that he uh, that we see him with the nobles of in the book of Esther is probably uh, a part of what they're doing would be talking about their plans for going into Greece in the years ahead. And so that, that may be the case. We're not sure, but it's interesting uh, to consider that being discussed when we read about Esther and Mordecai in just a little bit. <clears throat> now, according to the ancient historian Herodotus, King Xerxes was an impatient, hot-tempered man uh, who kind of had a wondering eye for the women. Now, according to some accounts, not only did he try to have an affair with his brother's wife, but he also did, in fact, have an affair with uh, the, the daughter of his brother, who was, in fact, his niece. And so he was known to kind of um, uh, be kind of a flanderer and, and really have a, um, a weak spot for the ladies. Now, it was said that he had a habit of making extravagant offers and gifts to them, which we'll see him later doing in, uh, to Esther when he offers to give up over half of his kingdom uh, <clears throat> if she just asked for it. And so he does have a, a weak spot uh, when it comes to uh, chasing after women. Now, the book of Esther picks up with Xerxes holding a feast to celebrate the third year of his reign as king. And he throws a party for 180 days. For almost half a year, he throws a party to celebrate himself. And that kind of gives you an idea of just how egotistical and self-centered he is that he would make such a pomp and circumstance for himself for only reigning uh, for three years up to this point. Now, he invites all the governors and the officials. And during this time, he displays all of his riches 
in all of his achievements. He throughout the six month period, he's having feasts, he's having celebrations. A lot of times, when uh, royalty would do this, they would cease all taxes, they would give generous gifts to the poor, and then he's parading all of his riches and treasures uh, before um, all the citizens of uh, of Babylon and of that city, of that region, in fact. Now, historical records tell us that it, it, it was the law in Persia that during a feast like this and during banquets, that whenever the king would drink, everyone else was required by law to drink as well. And this would lead to a great deal of drunkenness and, and just uh, crazy um, uh, behavior and things like that. But this was something that uh, the Babylonians and the Persians were very well known for. Uh, this is why a special mention uh, it, um, is depicted in Esther 1.8, where it says that this particular feast, um, Xerxes made an exception, for whatever reason we're not told, made an exception to temporarily um, uh, allow people to drink according to their own desires and conscience rather than under the pattern of the king and how he drinks. Now, it, it says in Esther 1.8 that the drinking was done according to the law. There was no compulsion for the king had given orders to each official of his uh, household that he should do according to the desires of each person. And so it says that there was under no compulsion that um, Xerxes said that, hey, listen, Oftentimes, y'all have to drink whenever I drink, but I'm going to be generous uh, at this feast, and y'all can drink either more than I drink, or you can drink less than I drink, but I'm going to leave that up to you. Now, this is going to become important for what Xerxes does next. It says, <clears throat> we find that the king had a vast harem of women. These were full of concubines, uh, which would have been legally married to the king. They would have been uh, his wives, but they would have been a little bit lower status than the official wife of the king, who was Queen Vashti. Now, scripture tells us that Queen Vashti was having her own feast with the women of the palace while her husband, King Xerxes, uh, partied with the other male nobility of his kingdom. Uh, now, this was not uncommon. Queens could often have their own feast, um, or they could dine with their husbands. They could go either way, depending on what the desire and wishes of the king were or the desires and wishes of the queen. And so I want to make special note of that. This was not unusual. It wasn't like she had fallen out of favor uh, with King Xerxes and she was being forced to uh, eat by herself. This was completely normal. Now, that's going to become important in just a second, as I'll mention. Now, uh, as the six-month-long celebration begins to approach its end, Scripture says that on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, which is a nice way of saying that he was drunk, uh, um, it says he commanded the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Xerxes to bring the uh, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the princess, for she was beautiful. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's commands delivered by the eunuchs. Then the king became very angry, and his wrath burned within him. Now, refusing the king's orders was not 
a very common thing. And often it resulted in immediate death on the spot. So many have tried to understand what bothered Vashti so much that she would risk her own life by refusing the king. Now, some have speculated that Queen Vashti refused to attend the king's feast because women weren't allowed at, uh, to be at the men's feast. That's why I mentioned earlier that that's not really true, that there are numerous examples in secular history around this time of queens having their own feasts or joining the men uh, at their feasts. And so it is really um, unlikely that that would be the reason for her refusal. It wasn't as though she uh, felt it was indecent for her to attend the king's feast. It would have been a great honor uh, for her to be at the king's feast. Now, Others point to the fact that the text tells us that Xerxes was uh, showing uh, showing off all of his treasures and possessions, and so he was treating Queen Vashti like she was just another thing or possession to show off to others. That he was just trying to parade her around as though she was just another trinket in his. Uh, collection. Now, this hits a little bit closer to the truth. It's very likely and perfectly in keeping with King Xerxes' character to treat his wife like she's just another thing, another treasure that he owns. But this would probably not have been a shock to Vashti that her, that her husband viewed her in this way. In fact, that's kind of the way a lot of kings during this time viewed women in general and, or, or even their own wives, that they were you know, basically a baby making machine uh, and some arm candy that uh, they could show off to other people. And so she probably would not have liked the idea that she was being showed off that way. Or maybe she did. Maybe she liked to uh, display her royal uh, treasures and kind of show off her beauty. Maybe she didn't. But I, Either way, even if she didn't like the idea of being craved around like that, I'm not sure if she would have uh, disliked it so much that she would have risked her life just to uh, dig in her heels about um, putting on some royal clothes, putting on some jewelry, and, and kind of showing the kingdom how beautiful she was. The more likely scenario, in my mind, and the one that we find in Jewish tradition as it uh looks at this particular passage of the scripture, uh, says that the king, uh, King Xerxes ordered Vashti to wear her crown and only her crown uh, to display her beauty at the banquet in a very indecent and uh, provocative way. Now, if this is the case, then it makes plenty of sense why Vashti would refuse to degrade herself, uh, especially since she's the queen, queen of Persia. You know, uh, it would not have been unreasonable for King Xerxes to possibly do this to one of his concubines, one of his lower wives, but she's the queen of Persia. She is uh, the number one wife in his, uh, in his palace. And so she could very well have felt like this was beneath her status. She could have felt very well like this was demeaning to her and embarrassing to her. And she may have been hoping that the king would sober up eventually and that he would realize how foolish it is uh, for him to order her to do such a thing and that he would forgive her disobedience. But unfortunately for Queen Vashti, the king did not forgive her once the wine wore off. Instead, he banished her from his presence. Now, that would mean um, that she's no longer queen, uh, but basically she's under house arrest there in his palace for the rest of her life. She would not marry anyone else. She would not go anywhere. She would just basically stay in, in house arrest. But this left a vacancy for the position of queen. So lustful, uh, chasing after women, King Xerxes, 
commanded that an assortment of young girls from all over his kingdom be brought to him, and there they would be dressed up and prepared to each in turn spend a night with the king. Whomever the king liked best would become the next queen. Um, and the rest of the girls, uh, they wouldn't go back to their homes. They wouldn't marry again. They would be concubines in the royal harem. And so basically King Xerxes would get a collection of new girls uh, that um, he could um, marry and be with. And then one of those girls, whoever he liked best after spending the night with them, would become the next queen. This should all be very disturbing to us, especially considering the fact that most of these girls would have been probably young teenagers uh, who really have no choice in uh, being a part of this royal beauty pageant. So this is where we meet Esther and her cousin Mordecai. Esther's parents have already uh, uh, died and, and and Mordecai, being her cousin and probably uh, the oldest male in her family, adopted her uh, and treated her basically as um, his own daughter. And so because she was very beautiful, she was drafted into this royal wedding competition. And because she had won the favor of the chief eunuch there in the palace, uh, who was in charge of getting all these girls ready, he told her how to best Please the king. Eunuchs were individuals who were greatly trusted and within the close uh, circle of um, confidences that the king would have. And so he knew what the king would like best. He relayed that to Esther. And so therefore, when it came time for Esther to be with the king and spend the night with him, uh, she wins his favor and becomes queen of Persia. Now, I don't know about you, but um, I'm regularly surprised by how, by how gritty the Bible can be at times. Because um, of sin, we live in a very dark and complicated world. Uh, and the lives uh, that we see in Scripture reflect that uh, in, in, a, um, in a big way. Now, as you can already see, this is not really a PG type of story, but God is involved uh, throughout the process. And so, uh, you know, a lot of times we find ourselves in very challenging and complicated situations as well, but we need to understand uh, none of this shocks God. He's seen it all before, and he works on behalf of us as we seek to live out, um, our, live our lives to his glory. Now, some people take issue with our hero, Esther, being a part of this type of story and then try to clean it up so that it's more presentable. Um, some tried to say that she didn't really do anything with the king. He was just so overwhelmed by her beauty that he decided to marry her and make her queen. I've also heard people go so far as to say that um, when Esther came to him, she didn't sleep with him or anything, but that she told him stories about God and Moses and all the other uh, big Israelite uh, Hebrew stories, and that he fell in love with her wisdom and her beauty. Now, while I don't want to smear Esther's re reputation, I also don't feel like we need to uh, be naive and try to whitewash it either. Esther was not immoral for her actions. After all, what else could she do? She lived in a very cruel world and she had very few options available to her. Uh, like all the other young girls that were brought into this um, royal pageant, um, she really just had to go with the flow. And either way, she was going to end up marrying the king, either as the queen or as a concubine. She was going to marry this individual. So he was already going to be essentially her husband. So there was nothing really immoral about what she did. Like all the other heroes that we've seen in scripture, she has great virtues and she does have some glaring faults. And we'll see some of those. And one of the most encouraging things uh, is that God is working behind the scenes to bless and use Esther 
Um, and, and that is the same God who has worked behind the scenes in your life and in my life as well. Now, the, me- the next major turn that we see in the story of Esther comes with the promotion of a man by the name of Haman. Now, uh, he's promoted to a, a position in Xerxes' court that is kind of unspecified in the text. We're not told exactly what position he has, but a lot of scholars believe that for various reasons, uh, he essentially becomes the gatekeeper to the king. And in this culture, it was forbidden for anyone, including even the king's wife, the queen, uh, to come into the presence of the king without his stated permission. Uh, he would either uh, be um, the, the king would either summon a person or the queen, uh, and they would be able to come, or uh, they would have to talk to the gatekeeper and state their reason for wanting to see the king. Uh, but the king would oftentimes, when he gave permission, he would hold out his staff, and the person would come and they would touch his staff, and that was kind of a um, sign that they have permission to come and speak with him. Now, naturally, this prompts Haman, as he's um, put in position, to basically um, decide who gets to talk to the most powerful person in the known world at that time. Uh, He gets kind of an ego trip. Others throughout the kingdom are are commanded to bow down and pay respect to Haman, but one person in particular refuses to do so, and that's Esther's cousin, Mordecai. Uh, And this kind of begins to attract attention for him not respecting Haman. Other people are starting to wonder, well, if Mordecai doesn't uh, pay homage and respect to Haman, do I really need to either. Um, And so this, in effect, deeply wounds Haman's pride, and he begins to make plans to make an example of Mordecai so that he can show others uh, that it is important for them to, in fact, honor him and celebrate him. But Haman isn't satisfied with just punishing Mordecai. Uh, His ego and his pride go so far that he plots a way to kill all of Mordecai's people who are the people of Israel, the Hebrews. Now, uh, an interesting part of the story is the fact that Haman is an Agite and uh, Mordecai is a Benjamite. Now, the reason for that significance is because people in this particular culture, when this story takes place, they place a huge emphasis on their genealogies, their ancestors, and their family history. Insults, injuries, and blood feuds can span, uh, span centuries and often Uh, We can often see this in the Middle East, even to this day. So if you remember back to the time of 1 Samuel, King Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. That's the same tribe that years later, Mordecai is to come from. King Saul went to war against the Amalekites and was told by God to utterly destroy them and to not take any of their plunder. Now, unfortunately, King Saul disobeys, and not only does he take the plunder, but he also takes prisoner of the Amalekite king, who happens to be Agag. Now, that's the forefather of Haman, the Agagite. Now, um, the prophet eventually rebukes Saul and kills Agag, but uh, obviously, his descendants lived on. He didn't, uh, the, the sons of King Agag uh, were not killed. So they later go on and, and have children. And that's who Haman is a descendant from. Now, one of the deeper themes in the story of Esther is this retelling of the story of Israel and the Amalekites, where in the end, Israel's enemies are destroyed. And so in this particular story, you see a great deal of conflict between Haman and um, Mordecai, basically the descendants of King Agag, who were supposed to be destroyed uh, by Saul, and one of the descendants of Saul, um, there's this constant conflict. And you see this repeated throughout the story. I, I, this is so often overlooked, but it's such an important part. 
we see later on that when the Israelites are victorious over Haman and his plot to kill them all, that they are offered the plunder of them. But just like in the story of Saul, um, they refuse to take it. They do the right thing as, as opposed to when Saul took the plunder, his descendants later don't take the plunder of Haman and those who are following him. So there's this whole retelling of the story that is really uh, fascinating when you when you dig deep into that particular aspect of it. Now, Haman uh, lies to the king and convinces him to give uh, Haman authority to kill all the Jews in the empire. He tells him basically that they're disobeying the laws, that they're basically stirring up rebellion. And so the king says, yeah, do whatever you need to uh, kill them all. And so Haman casts lots to determine when to carry out this deed. And it, uh, the lots tell him 12 months, especially rolling the dice. And they believe that the gods would control how the dice fell. And so that's how they made decisions as to when the gods would bless a particular endeavor. Now, that's important because uh, later on, this whole story and how it unfolds uh, results in the Israelite holiday of Purim, which means lots. And it's signifying and pointing back to this idea of when Haman cast the lots to kill the Jews, but God rescued them right at the last moment. And so uh, just keep that in mind. We'll come back to that in just a little bit. Now, the mode of death Haman chooses is to impale the Jews on wooden spikes or poles. Now, there are some translations that render this word gallows, which kind of gives us the image or the idea of Haman's nooses. Um, but the word that's actually used here simply means a tree. It doesn't mean gallows or anything like that. It means a tree. So the more common form of execution in Persia was to impale people on spikes or poles. Um, the Romans would eventually take this form of execution and refine it uh, to create what we now know as the crucifixion, which we later see in the New Testament. Now, Mordecai hears the king's decrees that the Jews are to be killed at the end of 12 months, and he tears his clothes and covers himself with ashes, the customary way in that culture to show grief sorrow or deep anguish. Then he goes and he decides to talk to Esther in hopes that she can convince the king to change his mind. Now, this isn't an easy task in itself because it's forbidden for anyone except the official eunuchs to come near the king's wives. Mordecai isn't supposed to be even near Esther, but because he has close connections with the chief eunuch, he's able to get a message to her. Now, at first, Esther is devastated to hear what has been decreed for her fellow Jewish people, but she's afraid to approach the king. First, the king doesn't know that she's Jewish, and she doesn't know what he'll do when she finds out that she is Jewish. Also, it's forbidden for her to approach the king uninvited. If she does so, uh, he, he may end up uh, killing her or putting her under house arrest like uh, Queen Vashti. Now, added to this fact is that Esther says that she hasn't been summoned to the king for 30 days. Now, this uh, would seem to indicate there may have uh, something may have happened that has caused her to fall out of favor with the king, so it makes her chances of approaching him even more difficult. But Mordecai, upon hearing Esther's concerns, replies with this famous line in scripture. He tells her, do not imagine that you and the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Now, Mordecai's incredible faith uh, has incredible faith that God will remain faithful 
uh, to his people and the promises he's made to them. His faith emboldens Esther to do what she can to help her people. And she tells Mordecai to gather all the Jews of the city and to fast for three days so uh, that God will move on their behalf. This is the only mention of anything um, kind of pious or religious uh, in the book. Now, the next thing that we read is, Now it came about that on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's room. And the king was sitting on his royal throne in the throne room opposite the entrance of the palace. When the king saw Esther, the queen, standing in the court, she obtained favor in his side. The king extended to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hands. So Esther came near and touched the top of the scepter. Then the king said to her, What is troubling you, Queen Esther? And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be given to you. Esther said, If it pleases the king, may the king and Haman come this day to the banquet that I have prepared for him. Now, some of you may be wondering, why in the world didn't she ask the king to reverse the order and kill the Jews then? In fact, what Esther is doing is buttering up the king, uh, full, uh, fully piquing his interest into what her request would be. So they eat, they drink at the banquet. Uh, there, the king, queen asks Esther what she would like for him to do. And yet again, she asks uh, that both he and Haman attend the banquet tomorrow, increasing his interest and his curiosity, and he agrees. Haman leaves that banquet, thinking that he must truly be the most favored person in all the kingdom to be included in such intimate gatherings. Now, at the next banquet, the king again asks, Esther what she would like for him to do. And now the king is eager to know her request. She says that all she wants is not to die and not to watch her people die. Now, baffled, the king demands to know who would devise such a plot to kill his beloved queen. And Esther reveals that it's Haman. Now, the king just flies into a blind rage and he storms out of the banquet and into his gardens. Meanwhile, Haman falls on the couch next to Esther and begins begging for his life. Now, to make matters even worse, the king returns and sees Haman all over his wife. Thinking that he's trying to either defile her or to assault her, the king simply, uh, the, the, the text simply says, Now when the king returned from the palace gardens into the place where they were drinking wine, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. Then the king said, Will he even assault the king, uh, queen in my house, uh, with me in the house? And, as the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Now, the phrase, they covered Haman's face, is generally understood one of two ways. Either they covered his face because they were leading him to death, and like you've probably seen before, um, where people have a, a black sack or a bag put over their head as they're being led away as a prisoner or at, uh, to the execution, it could be that. Or it can refer to the fact that Haman already died, possibly of a heart attack from just the, the fear of the situation that was unfolding before him, that they covered uh, his body uh, after he, he fell down dead of a heart attack. If that's the case, then it's his body that is later impaled on the very poles that he meant for Mordecai. Now, once Haman is dead, the king cannot undo the law. Um, but instead, he allows Mordecai to write an official letter giving all the Jews the right to assemble and to defend themselves from attack. At any other time, assembling like this uh, would be seen as an act of rebellion. But in this instant, they're giving permission to muster together an army to defend themselves against uh, those who, who hate the Jews and want to kill them. Now, this work 
this works and the, the Jews survive. It is, uh, it is this particular event that is celebrated each year around early March uh, with the Jewish holiday Purim. Uh, now, this is a holiday. This is the first holiday, in fact, uh, that the Jewish people celebrate. It's not commanded in the law of Moses. Uh, the second one that is, is established that's not talked about in the law of Moses is the uh, holiday Hanukkah. Uh, now, during this time, they uh, celebrate um, by having a fast like Esther did before she approached the king. And then they have a huge feast where they wear masks and costumes and give gifts to one another. Now, again, Esther is a very complex uh, book with lots of deep meaning to it. Uh, she, yes, she has uh, great flaws, but she also has great faith as well. And it's that that I think is so beautiful about these individuals throughout Scripture is that they truly represent what humanity is like and what uh, life is like. And I think this is a wonderful story for us to talk now, especially talk about now, especially because of all the things going on in the Middle East with Israel and the Palestinians and the uptick and anti-Jewish uh, hate crimes. In America, God is going to be faithful to his people. He is going to watch over them. There's always been persecution. There's always been threats of death and extermination. But God has always watched out for his people, not only the Jews, but also uh, just the people of God, uh, the church as well. And so I, I encourage each and every one of you, know that even though you may not see God moving in your life, he is always behind the scenes working and moving to his good purpose and to bless uh, his faithful children. So with that said, we're going to end it there uh, for this week. I hope you join us again next week as we continue this wonderful discussion on Heroes of Faith. Take care and God bless.